0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to NATO's Road to Madrid, the CSIS podcast where we break down the main issues on NATO's agenda ahead of its summit in Madrid at the end of June. I'm Max Bergman, the new director of the Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program at CSIS. Before coming to CSIS, I was a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, a position I started after spending the better part of a decade in the State Department. I want to also thank my excellent co-hosts on this podcast, visiting fellows, Pierre Marcos, Luis Simon and Sean Monahan, who have stepped in as interim hosts for the podcast. Next week, we will have an exciting new episode hosted by Pierre and Luis on NATO and the Global South. Uh, but this week, I'm thrilled that my first interview as host of NATO's Road to Madrid is with Congressman Jerry Connolly. Congressman Connolly is one of the leading voices on the Hill focused on NATO and European security. And he was kind enough to give us some of his time on Tuesday. He has a great grasp on everything on NATO's agenda and gave a congressional viewpoint on a wide range of topics. But we especially focused on the importance of democratic values and political cohesion for the future of the Alliance. The Congressman also explained his role as president of NATO's parliamentary assembly and his expectations for the forthcoming Madrid summit. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Well, Congressman Connolly, thanks so much for, for being here with me. Pleasure. So I want to start with, I think, the biggest story on NATO's agenda right now, and that's obviously Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I think Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine in the hopes that this would put NATO on the back foot uh, as as one sort of underlying motive, but it's had the exact opposite effect. NATO has come out of this, I think, far stronger and far united. I'm curious, for your assessment, how do you think the U.S. and NATO uh, have responded to the crisis, uh,
1: responded to the war? I would give both the United States and NATO very high marks for uh, a unified response to Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine. And and I would agree that uh, Vladimir Putin profoundly miscalculated. Now, he had reason to miscalculate because the Western reaction to his previous illegal annexation and occupation of Crimea and uh, the eastern parts of Donbas uh, you know, was very muted, very divided. Not much happened. Uh, the Minsk Accords that came out of some of our allied partners all but conceded Crimea. I'm one who believed that you know, you, the minute you agree to something like that, then we're just quibbling over territory. You've already conceded the principle. That the forcible seizure of sovereign territory in the 21st century is still you know, alive and well. And, and we, it seems to me, can never agree to that. And and in the and in the, in the example I use is the United States itself with respect to Lithuania, for example. After the Soviets reoccupied the Baltic republics and incorporated them into the greater Soviet Union after World War II, the United States refused to recognize that annexation, that incorporation. And I can remember when I first moved to Washington, seeing this building flying the Lithuanian flag. And I I said, you know, what is that? And the answer was, that is the Lithuanian embassy. The United States never recognized Soviet Union's uh, incorporation. And that seemed quixotic. In 1972. And yet today, they are EU members, they're NATO members, they are sovereign independent states uh, who are helping to lead uh, the NATO alliance uh, in opposition to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So, you know, holding out uh, is not a quixotic thing. It may take time, but it matters. And so I think the West strategically misstepped. Uh, And Putin took that signal to mean that he could get away with it. This time, however, I think people had had enough. And I think there was a sense that this time, you know, there's a a certain gravity to this, a brutality that um, nobody expected to encounter and that this was a do or die moment for NATO. Either we respond to this forcibly and in, a, and, and in full solidarity, or we are conceding the very role we were created to play in the first place. And so that moment of truth uh, was front and center for everybody and the brutality of, of Vladimir Putin and, and, and the Russian military um, could no longer be swept aside or rationalized or explained away or dismissed And so the magical thinking about Putin and Russia also disappeared. And so all that happened, thank you, Vladimir Putin, at the terrible expense of the Ukrainian people. But it almost overnight created a new unity among NATO of both purpose and resolve uh, that had not been displayed when it should have been back in 2014 there's a
0: growing concern that I hear, particularly uh, uh, amongst uh, supporters of Ukraine, of, of so-called Ukraine fatigue, that uh, that Europe and the United States are going to sort of lose interest in what's happening uh, in Ukraine. The, the newspapers are going to start to move on. You know, you're at the center of this. You're a member of Congress. There's a lot happening right now politically in the United States, whether it's school shootings, whether it's uh, Roe v. Wade. Are, are you concerned that, that the West, that U.S., NATO, Europe are going to, you know, move on, begin to lose interest in in what's happening in Ukraine?
1: I think that's a real concern, especially in the world we live in, which is sort of, you know, barely 24-hour news cycles and social media uh, and sort of the new shiny object today, uh, which is not the same as yesterday. So attention spans are limited. But I think I think In this case, it's going to be hard, even if you have fatigue, to allow that fatigue to displace the focus uh, of the horror that is unfolding. So uh, those sanctions are going to deepen and take root and have consequences for years to come, even if you're fatigued. And I would say that the refugee and humanitarian crisis is something that can't be ignored. And remember that's engulfing more and more countries. So that's affecting Baltic republics. that's affecting Hungary, that's affecting Romania, that's affecting uh, Poland of course, and Slovakia. Uh, It will be affecting other countries as Ukrainians seek to settle in a semi-permanent way so long as this violence and the occupation go on. And so, you know, You've got so many countries now you know, operationally consumed by this crisis either on the military side or the humanitarian side or both. Then of course you've got Sweden and Finland you know, breaking with you know, a century of neutrality as a matter of policy, stated policy and almost overnight deciding, no, we're throwing our lot in with the Western Alliance militarily and we understand that that's going to incur the wrath of Vladimir Putin and Russia and you know what we don't care um, so you're you also have fatigue notwithstanding potentially two new members with real military capability and lots of knowledge intelligence wise experientially with Russia which will also I think you know refresh um, uh, everyone's focus even if it starts to wane so i I, i'm not as worried about fatigue uh, as some others because i just don't think the current circumstances are going to allow us to uh, use that fatigue to move on to something else i think this is going to be a front and center issue for a long time to come it may not be a headline every day but that doesn't mean that our we're not going to be consumed by it
0: let me also ask you about uh, bipartisanship on the Hill. I mean, the Hill just passed uh, a, a tremendous $40 billion support package for Ukraine, which the president signed. Do you think that demonstrates the bipartisan commitment uh, to Ukraine security to support for Ukraine? Or, uh, or do you have some concerns that there was you know, a, a small minority that, that rose, rose up and, and spoke out against, against that package? How... What, what, what message do you think was sort of sent by, by that $40 billion package?
1: Well, let's take the good part first. I think you saw overwhelming bipartisan support. Remember, Congress took what was originally being proposed as a $33 billion package and actually added to it. And, um, and we had the Republican leader in the Senate actually visiting with President Zelensky in Kyiv to show. Republican support, lest there be any doubt. And I can tell you, I went to Poland and Ukraine early in the war, and uh, it was a bipartisan delegation, and you, you'd be hard pressed to know who's a Republican and who's a Democrat when we're talking about Ukraine and Russia. So I think that kind of unity, and by the way, it's, it's still holding, and here we are now in June, that was March, early March, it's holding, uh, if not even strengthening. And, uh, and I think that there's a, a real determination here in Congress to uh, stand with Ukraine and to uh, frankly raise the costs on Russia so that this is not an alternative anybody seeks again anytime soon. Again, something we did not do in 2014 your Crimea and we should have. Having said that, and that's the good part and I, I think that should be celebrated. I have not had this kind of bipartisan experience on anything hmm. in a long time here in Congress. And I've been here 14 years. So it's, it's very substantial and very important and consequential. But there is a crowd of 50 or 60 colleagues who marched to the, the drum of the alt-right who, believe, who were saying before the invasion, that actually NATO and Ukraine were provoking Putin, that it was their fault, not his. Now, that's been muted because the horror and brutality make it completely untenable to say that. But they're voting that way. Some of them, it's a libertarian thing. We don't want to get caught up in anybody else's problems. Having disengaged from Afghanistan and Iraq, why do we want to start all over again in Europe? But that's a small percentage of the crowd that is voting um, really a Steve Bannon-like kind of message, which is, he would ask the question, uh, with Article 5 of NATO, are we really willing to go to war over Estonia? And of course, the whole point of the alliance uh, is to say to a would-be adversary, uh, you attack one, you attack all, and you better calculate that. And we mean it. And ironically, of course, as you know, the only time Article 5 has in fact been triggered was for the United States Correct. after 9 11. So I do think we need to worry about that influence of the alt right and the um, their narrative that is very much antithetical to Western values, to the alliance itself. And I think, frankly, is uh, a, a very dangerous surrogate for Russian propaganda. Let me
0: sort of pivot and ask you uh, about the NATO Parliamentary Assembly. You are the the president of the uh, NATO Parliamentary Assembly. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about what it is, what it does and and what sort of value uh, you think it brings, bringing legislators from all over the NATO alliance uh, together.
1: So, the NATO Parliamentary Assembly was formed a little bit after NATO itself, and it was to try to capture the uh, the broader political perspective of our respective parliaments. That's in contrast to say NATO itself, right? So when NATO has a meeting, 30 countries, uh, it's one foreign minister per country. Uh, and that foreign minister represents the governing coalition or or the government itself. By contrast, we represent the parliaments of those 30 countries, and we represent all points of view. So every delegation has multiple parties. Um, And building consensus is very challenging with hundreds of members of the NATO Parliamentary Assembly. And the fact that we are able to do that, the fact that we we have debates and white papers and we, you know, uh, we don't have a, a strict consensus rule where someone can exercise a veto, but we forge, I think, a broad consensus as we have on Ukraine, and I think there's real value in that. I also believe that at the end of the day, those foreign ministers, those defense ministers, those prime ministers or presidents, ultimately are accountable to their parliaments, and those parliaments represent. The public will, and if you're not if you're not resonating with them, you're going to lose support for NATO and and the underpinnings of NATO. Um, and uh, so, I think having this, if you will, legislative arm of NATO is not only useful; I think it's essential, moving forward. So, the, and and we I think we do a pretty good job of working in sync. We meet a lot with the Secretary General of NATO, who uh, by the way was a member of the NATO Parliamentary Assembly. Uh, the Speaker of the House here in Congress, Nancy Pelosi was a member of the US delegation to the NATO Parliamentary Assembly. So, so you know, our, our kind of tentacles go into lots of governments at lots of different levels. And it's been good experience, I think, for people moving on in their diplomatic or political careers and bringing that understanding and appreciation of the hard work of many different cultures, many different political expressions and perspectives together around an agenda. Um, and I think that's really important. Now, there's one other thing, however, that I think is a real contribution we're trying to make right now in this strategic concept update. And that is, we're all about shared values, aren't we? We're not just a military alliance. Because if we are just a military alliance, then we're just a military collective that doesn't like Russia. And I don't think that's a sufficient ground to hold together this alliance with the public. We in the Atlantic Charter 73 years ago committed to shared democratic values. This is not just any military alliance. It's a military alliance built around shared democratic values. Now, we haven't always lived up to that individual, but that's explicit in the Atlantic Charter. And so one of the things we're trying to do as the NATO Parliamentary Assembly is to actually formalize that by creating architecture within NATO that propounds advocates for, defends, uh, disseminates uh, those democratic values and how, how we build democratic institutions. You know, how do you run a democratic parliament? How do you have real oversight? How do you make sure your, your judiciary really is independent? How do you preserve those basic freedoms we're committed to? Um, and, and if you are a prospective member of NATO, we also want to kind of create the, the coda that you would have to embrace and follow if you want to become part of the alliance. So we've never formalized any of that. Uh, you know, I like to say, you know, we've got a brand new, beautiful headquarters in Brussels, that looks like something out of Star Wars, if you've been there. I expect, you know, stormtroopers to come marching out with Darth Vader or something. And uh, it's just spectacular. But this, and, you know, we got offices for interoperability, mo- mobility, strategic planning, you know, game uh, gaming to, uh, to look at the threat assessments and so forth. There's not a broom closet in that headquarters dedicated to the pr- propagation of democracy and democratic shared values. And after January 6th in our own country, we know dramatically that the threats are not only external, but they are sadly internal. And you've got to refresh those shared values. You can't just give them rhetorical obeisance and assume that you've done your job. We need a lot more than that. And it's time after so many people talking about the retreat of liberal democracy, that we actually Move it forward by having NATO formally not only embrace this idea but actually create that architecture.
0: Thank you, Congressman. I couldn't agree more on on the centrality of democratic values to the alliance. You know, one one uh, issue that has sort of come up this week um, is that is Poland and its sort of uh, issues with the rule of law and its independent judiciary, uh, arguments with the EU and European Commission. But Poland has also been a steadfast ally of Ukraine, has has played an exemplary role when it comes to supporting Ukraine. Do you feel like we've, in some ways, the crisis has sort of shifted a little bit of focus away from uh, Poland's rule of law issues and and perhaps some of its uh, democratic uh, challenges um, and and we're sort of moving past it because Poland has been so steadfast on Ukraine?
1: Well, let me just say all democracies need to be refreshed. All democracies are both resilient and fragile at the same time. We just went through a four-year administration where democracy itself was threatened. Whereas we are learning more and more, free elections were being undermined and threatened in the country that was considered the model of democracy for everybody. So if we have challenges, and and institutions and democracy that we can't take for granted here, it can't come as a surprise that there are similar challenges in other places as well within the alliance. Having said that, in the case of Poland, when I was there in early March, looking at the refugee and military situation, what struck me was that this was an opportunity for Poland itself maybe to step back a little bit and, and and. Reevaluate what it meant to be part of our alliance. Uh, not only that its borders were protected because it is a NATO member, but also its generosity in opening its borders to millions of Ukrainians. But why were there millions of Ukrainian refugees? Because an authoritarian leader felt so threatened by the prospect of a, a, a you know fomenting democracy that was beginning to rise up in neighboring Ukraine, that he felt um, invasion and destruction were the better alternative than the threat of an alternative system that might be attractive not only to Ukrainians, but to Russians. And I, I think it, it had to strike many poles that that's, what, that's the alliance they're part of too. And that um, as we look to the future, strengthening those institutions and those values and those basic freedoms actually is a better course. And, uh, and, and actually in the long run, it is the ultimate guarantee against the authoritarianism and the violence that we're witnessing in Ukraine today.
0: I want to ask you about uh, Finland and Sweden and, and their prospective memberships. We talked about it. Uh, briefly you mentioned that there would be great assets to the alliance and I couldn't agree more there but there's some concern that that their uh, uh, applications may be held up by Turkey um, there's some issues right now in Sweden about whether they, uh, they will be able to to make the, the uh, any sort of progress with Turkey do you think Turkey will come around what is your view of, uh, of Turkey right now in in when it uh, when it comes to Ukraine when it comes to uh, Finland and Sweden membership.
1: I think there's a. I think there are a number of dynamics at work here. Turkey has placed on the table some concerns it has uh, about Kurdish ties and organizations, especially in Sweden, and the contacts between Swedish government officials and Kurdish leaders, uh, and the alleged ties of some of those Kurdish organizations to terrorism. And I believe that that's a category that can generate some reassurances that might satisfy Turkish concerns without anybody having to absolutely step away from interactions, communication, and commitments they may have. I also believe there's domestic politics here. Uh, President Erdogan politically is... uh, Uh, Facing elections, uh, he has some real challenges with the economy that he did not have last time around, and there's every reason to believe that his party could be facing some strong headwinds as he goes into that election. So showing strength, showing his own people that he is a force to be reckoned with in the international scene, that he has influence within NATO, that he can stop something if he wants to. Or slow it down uh, all by himself, uh, protecting, of course, Turkey's interests. Uh, you know, I think is also a dynamic at work here. My sense in, in dealing with my own Turkish colleagues um, in the NATO parliamentary assembly is there's some leverage being sought and exercised here, um, but I don't sense you know implacable intransigence with respect to Swedish and Finnish membership. And I think, the, I think the Turks do understand that this is a case where their accession to NATO membership would definitely benefit the entire alliance. It's also complicated a little bit though by the complexity of the Turkish relationship that's evolved with Russia. You know, in the old days, that wouldn't have been much of a question. Uh, And that goes way back, you know, with Russian ambitions in the Dardanelles and wanting, you know, warm water port and all that stuff. Today, while the Turks are providing drones to the Ukrainians to fight the Russians, uh, they're also playing a role of would-be interlocutor with Putin in the uh, war and in some ways have been a voice within the councils of NATO to say let's not go too far and let's give him some breathing room to maybe find an exit ramp and all that kind of thing. I don't want to overstate that because I think Turkey at the end of the day has been part of the alliance and absolutely part of the reaction and supported sanctions and other things. But Erdogan is a very proud man who wants to not be taken for granted and and finds slights, real and imagined, and acts on them. Um, and so we're going to have to deal with that, but I don't think at the end of the day, he's willing to veto their membership. Um, I, I think he understands that that would earn him almost universal opprobrium from the other members of NATO and, and could significantly impair Turkey's ability to move forward on a lot of fronts. Uh, you know, Turkey already paid a price with respect to the F-35 purchase after it purchased a Russian S-400 missile systems. They understand there are consequences from actions. And so I would think he's going to make a point, uh, insist maybe on the point, uh, but at the end of the day, find a way to relent and allow Sweden and Finland to move forward. And I I think
0: it'll also be quite difficult if we get to a point where all 29 other nations have have ratified and and Turkey's a lone holdout, you sort of lose some leverage at at that point. Now, I wanna sort of pivot to what's coming up in the the next few weeks that you will um, represent the the parliamentary assembly at the NATO summit in Madrid. What are you hoping to see uh, at the, the NATO summit in Madrid? What do you think will be kind of the main headlines coming out of the summit?
1: Well, as you know, the uh, other than the charter itself founding NATO, um, arguably the most strategic document we have operationally is the strategic concept. And that's updated roughly every decade, every 10 years. Now, the current strategic concept is hopelessly out of date. It still refers to Russia as a strategic partner. It doesn't mention China at all. So a country about to become the world's largest economy, which already possesses the world's largest navy and the world's largest armed forces, uh, uh, with very aggressive ambitions not only in the South China Sea, but worldwide. You know, financially building the one, you know, the One Belt One Road initiative, financing development projects all over the world, competing. And, and pursuing its interests up in the Arctic, which is definitely within NATO territory, financing projects in the South Mediterranean in NATO territory. Um, but also it seems to me, NATO has to sort of broaden this perspective that the fact that it's not in our direct theater doesn't mean we shouldn't and mustn't be concerned about it. And so taking cognizance of China, both as an opportunity and as a potential threat Um, I think it's just critical to updating the strategic concept. And obviously what's happened in Ukraine, uh, although frankly, long before that uh, necessitates uh, a complete revision of how we look at Russia. And and so I think going into the strategic concept is going to be actually more cohesion because of the events that have unfolded. And I think, uh, you know, Updating the reality we face on the international scene, renewing that open door policy that it is the right of any nation to determine with whom it wishes to align and what memberships it wants to pursue and and do it without threat or intimidation by a third nation, really critical. By expanding from 30 members to 32, namely uh, ratifying Sweden and Finland's uh, request for membership, hopefully in an expedited basis, um, renews interest in partnership relationships for the future. And I think some of the sensitivity about, well, Russia might not like that one, uh, getting too close to Russia, Putin uh, is going to react. Well, you know, frankly, with what Putin has done, I think we're all a lot less concerned about his sensibilities and his reactions. Uh, he's already done the worst. And um, we're not going to spend a lot of time worrying about what he thinks. Uh, we are going to spend a lot of time about fortifying and buttressing our capability as a defensive military alliance with no you know, territorial ambitions, no offensive military desires, or, but, we're, but we want to make sure that we remain um, the most effective military alliance in the world. Um, that after all, largely has kept the peace in Europe uh, since World War II for over 70 years. So very successful, but uh, if we needed renewal of purpose and resolve, I would say the invasion of Ukraine has provided us a dramatic basis for that. So I, I, I see the strategic concept dealing with all of that. But there's a third set of issues And that is what we were talking about a little bit earlier in terms of our commitment to shared democratic values. I want to see that translated from rhetoric into something concrete. So we want to see an architecture created within NATO that addresses directly uh, what those shared values are and how they're translated into government and best practices, benchmarking, serving as a resource, cross-fertilization of ideas. Um, all of that I think is very important for NATO qua NATO to do. And you know, initially with this idea, we found a lot of it as well, the EU does that. Well, you know, the United States, Canada, Turkey, Norway, and the United Kingdom are not members of the EU. So should we outsource any concern we have about democratic values to the EU? And can we afford to have more than one? Promoting democracy, it seems to me we, that's something, that's a cost we all can and should bear. But NATO itself, as we move forward, what are we? Who are we? Um, and I, I think this is an essential uh, step we must take. Now, I'm very gratified. We talked a little bit earlier, you asked about what is the role of the NATO parliamentary assembly. Well, you know, every year in our first meeting, which is in Brussels, we meet in the uh, Atlantic Council with the, uh, ambassadors of the respective members of NATO from the, you know, to NATO. And uh, we now have, I think 24 of the 30 ambassadors explicitly endorsing uh, this idea of the creation of a center for democratic resilience. Uh, we've never seen anything like that. And that is a great testament to the important role NATO parliamentary assembly plays because it was something we insisted on but it also shows a great responsiveness on the part of our respective countries to hearing those voices and trying to respond to them productively and creatively so um, i think it's been a great partnership and my hope is that that's going to be one of the legacies from this strategic concept if january 6 and the invasion of ukraine as well as other things but those two sort of bookends don't underscore the need to get very concrete and very specific about our commitment and what it means to democratic shared values. I don't know what does.
0: Congressman, let me ask you one last uh, final question. So, you know, one thing that I hear from Europeans quite a bit is how can we sort of rely on uh, America in, in the future? Uh, Ambassador Bolton, uh, Trump's uh, national security advisor, wrote in his book that, that Trump, if he had won a second term, President Trump was uh, intent on, on withdrawing the US from NATO with a presidential election in the United States, uh, relatively around the corner, given how long our presidential cycles are in 2024, uh, what do you tell Europeans about the, the, the long-term commitment of the United States uh, to NATO and to the NATO Alliance?
1: I believe that there is a strong bipartisan commitment here in the United States as expressed in our polity um, here in Congress, To NATO. For example, in the Trump years, Secretary General Stoltenberg was the first NATO Secretary General ever invited to address a joint session of Congress. Who initiated that? It might surprise you to learn it was Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader of the US Senate, enthusiastically supported by Nancy Pelosi, the Democratic Speaker of the House. So there's, and, and you certainly are seeing that bipartisan supermajority here in Congress expressing itself with and through NATO with respect to what's happening in Ukraine. But I do think the lesson learned during the Trump years is you can't take that for granted. You got to work it. And, and some of the burdens on our allies. You know, for years, we've been telling them, you got to keep that 2% pledge. You know, eight years ago in Wales, a pledge was made by every NATO member that will devote at least 2% of our GDP to defense spending. And fewer than half of the members of NATO actually kept that pledge. And we kept on telling our allies before Trump got elected, you're undermining public support in the United States because it looks like you don't really believe in the mission of NATO unless we pay the bill because you're not willing to anti up. And and if that's the case, you're eroding support for the very basis of this alliance in the United States, your most important partner. And um, and and we won't be alone. There'll be others that will ask the banning question: Do we really want to go to war over Estonia? Is it really worth it? Is it obsolete? Is it something that is a you know a, a a relic of the past we no longer need because after all, Russia's a full-fledged member of the global community and China's far off and we really don't need this alliance anymore. And and again, all of that I think has for now um, really been clarified by what Putin has done in Ukraine. But we also should have learned a lesson from the Trump years that we cannot take that alliance and our membership and our support for granted. It needs to be bolstered and refreshed. And it is in part dependent on our allies to do their fair share too. Uh, we're, we, we can't be the only player. We, we can be the essential player, but I would say after the Trump years, hopefully we've learned some humility in the exercise of leadership but our allies have also learned how necessary it is for them to step up so that you know we're in this together in a genuine partnership and we're keeping the commitments collectively we've made well
0: congressman connolly it's been a tremendous honor to have you on our podcast it's been i think a really great and wide-ranging conversation thank you for joining us on nato's road to madrid
1: my pleasure max thank you so much for having me
0: That was another episode of NATO's Road to Madrid. Thank you to Congressman Connolly for joining us and to our listeners for tuning in. Thank you also to the team at CSIS, to my colleague Colin Wall, our lead researcher and coordinator on the project, and to our editor, Alana Nevins. If you like what you heard, please check out our page on the CSIS website. Subscribe to the podcast on the platform of your choice and leave us a rating and review. See you next time.